Our scripture reading this evening is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Mark 6, 14 through 29, hear the Word of God. And King Herod heard of him, that is Jesus, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John, and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him, and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man, and an holy one, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things, and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee, And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. The king was exceeding sorry. Yet for his own sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king set an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head in a charger, and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Thus far, the reading of sacred Scripture. Dear church family, As you know, the first Lord's Day of November has been set aside by many churches around the globe, at least 50,000 of them in 115 different countries, to preach and to pray on behalf of our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe. Today, 66 nations in the world are persecuting Christians in various degrees of blatant opposition. And we have great need in this alarming plight to cry out to the heavens that God would have mercy upon fellow believers in all these lands. Today, we recognize that the trouble, the persecution that Christians go through to be Christians is more alarming than any day in all of church history. Fox's Book of Martyrs, the martyrdoms in the Reformation, in the Puritan age, the imprisonments of most of the preachers, it is all minor. I say that literally compared to what is going on in the world today. Millions around the world who profess the name of Christ are subject to all kinds of persecution. Millions, every Lord's Day, are meeting secretly for worship in their homes and are oppressed by government forces and violent mobs even when they do so. 
Their towns and homes are ransacked and burned. Christian children and women are sold into slavery and raped. Husbands and wives, parents and children have their throats slit in front of each other by communist insurgents or Islamic militants for no other reason than refusing to deny the name of Jesus Christ. Hundreds of thousands are brutally tortured, brainwashed in an effort to force them to recant their faith. It's been years in solitary prison cells, hard labor camps, fearing daily for their lives. They die for their faith. World Missions Digest estimates that more than 200,000 Christians are killed every year for being Christians. Millions more face unimaginable horrors, severe discrimination in their daily lives. Their education is restricted. They're forced to take menial jobs in their societies. They're frozen out of the political and judicial processes of their society. They're ridiculed, marginalized, despised. There have been more persecution of Christians in the last hundred years than in the 2,000 years of post-Pentecost Christian history. Now, in our country, this is all hard to imagine. Seems so far away, we say. We face some opposition, and it's, in, it's intensifying, of course. But the law of our land still allows us freedom to worship. It's hard, isn't it, to picture what it would be like to live in fear that your wife or your husband or your children or your parents might betray you into the hands of the authorities at any time for your faith. That's exactly what millions of Christians are going through right now as we speak. And the problem is growing. The problem is growing here in America, but it's also growing, intensifying all around the world, and much more extremely so. Many of these nations are experiencing the fulfillment of Tertullian's famous words, however. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, none of this ought to surprise us, because Jesus has told us that persecution will be the lot of Christians. James has told us that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Ten of the twelve apostles suffered martyrdom. The early church suffered all kinds of cruelty. So did the medieval church at times, especially the Reformers, the Puritans, the Scottish Covenanters. But nothing like today. Temptation facing Christians suffering persecution today is unheard of. And we, in our land, are called to be faithful with the degree of persecution that we suffer. Though it be much less, we too can be tempted to compromise. A public school teacher can be tempted to give in to the government and support in homosexuality and transgenderism in the classroom, for example. Or the temptation for a doctor can be that If he doesn't offer abortion, he might be sacked and lose his career. Whatever temptation you might be facing, or will face, and no doubt will face a lot more in the future, as uh, Dr. Kelderman pointed out last Lord's Day morning. However subtle it might be, however overt it might be, we are called to suffer valiantly for Jesus Christ. Not to compromise. It is all worth it. To suffer for that Savior who gave His entire life for us. He that endureth to the end. That very Savior has told us. Shall be saved. So tonight I want to look with you at the faithfulness. The persecution and the martyrdom. In the death of John the Baptist. From Mark 16. Our text is 14 through 29. Read to you. Our theme, persecution, John the Baptist beheaded. We'll look at three thoughts. John's faithfulness in confronting Herod. John's persecution despite Herod's awakened conscience. And John's martyrdom 
at the hands of Herod. And throughout, we're going to apply this, of course, in practical lessons to our own lives today. So, who is the Herod? Who is the Herod that is introduced to us here in Mark 6? Well, in the New Testament, there are actually four Herods, as you might know. The first is the patriarch of the family. He's usually called Herod the Great. He was appointed king of Judea by the Roman emperor. He reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. This is the Herod of Matthew 2, who heard of Christ being born and sought to kill him by killing all male children under the age of two years. The second Herod, which is the Herod of Mark 6, is Herod Antipas, one of the ten sons of Herod the Great. When Herod the Great died shortly after Jesus was born, the Roman emperor split the kingdom of Judea into four provinces. He made his son, Herod Antipas, what's called a tetrarch, which literally means ruler of one-fourth. Herod Antipas became the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. That's to say, he was the ruler of only a part of northern Palestine in the Roman Empire. And he lived from 21 B.C. to 39 A.D. And so it's this Herod, Herod Antipas, that was ruling the Galilee area during the period of Jesus' ministry there. Now sometimes the New Testament calls him Herod the Tetrarch, which is his proper title. Sometimes Herod the King, which is what he was aspiring to do but never became. But the common people sometimes called him the king because he acted like he was the king in his ruthlessness. The third Herod is Herod Agrippa. He was the king of Judea who persecuted the church in Acts 12. He's the one who martyred James, the brother of John. And the fourth Herod was Herod Agrippa II. That's the king who Paul met in Acts 25 and 26, and who said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now in terms of lifestyle, none were so wicked as Herod Antipas, the Herod of Mark 6. He became known as a particularly wicked, lustful, sinful man. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, is what made his heart beat. He was a man of great pride and ambition. He led an ostentatious, decadent life, feeding his pride by building palaces for himself, feeding his lust with ungodly parties. It wasn't the kind of person you could trust. Jesus actually called him in Luke 12, that old fox, indicating his character was conniving, manipulative. Herod Antipas demonstrated this lustful character blatantly in his marital life. He was first married to a daughter of the king of Nabatea, a kingdom east of Palestine. But he would divorce his wife unlawfully. We read in verse 17 of our text, his brother Philip's wife, he married her. But Philip married another brother's daughter, his niece, and that niece is Herodias. So she actually marries her uncle. And when Herod met Herodias, his brother's wife, he was infatuated, obsessed with her. And they began an adulterous relationship. He persuaded her to divorce and leave Philip, and he would divorce and leave his wife, and they would be married. That's exactly what happened. So Herodias, who married her uncle, divorced her uncle, and married another uncle, all of which was sinful and unlawful. The Word of God speaks against it directly in Leviticus 18. Verse 13, and again in verse 16, Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife, that is thy brother's nakedness. And then in Leviticus 20, 21, If a man shall take his brother's wife, it's an unclean thing. So the marriage 
of Herod and Herodias was an adulterous marriage. And Herod knew that. But as a man of pride, ambition, lust, he entered into it anyhow. And so when John the Baptist came on the scene to preach to Herod, because Herod had, like many in his family, had kind of a fascination with preachers and had some convictions about God in his conscience. John the Baptist openly condemned this marriage and called Herod to repentance. Look at verse 18. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. John, you see, is just being a faithful preacher here. He doesn't compromise the truth. He doesn't make excuses for Herod. He calls sin, sin. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who is indulging in it, or what it is, or, or when, or how, or the condition of it. Sin is sin. John fears God and not man. He seeks to please God and not man. He comes to Herod. He says, your marriage is unlawful. It's adulterous. It is to be condemned. You need to repent. Now, of course, we know that that, that kind of bold, direct preaching was characteristic of John the Baptist. He had said already to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you are a generation of vipers trusting in yourself, in my words, trusting in your own ethnicity and lineage, but God can raise up children of Abraham from these rocks and stones. And he called them to repentance as well. Now John the Baptist's calls to repentance, however, were not just calls to legal repentance. John the Baptist did call to repentance, but his goal was always evangelical. He didn't just preach law to end in law. He was calling sinners to Jesus Christ. He was a pointer to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His delight was to exalt Jesus, to decrease himself, that Jesus would increase, he says. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Well, this, of course, is the calling of every preacher to preach law and gospel, to be honest about sin, but also to be free with offers of Christ. But it's also the calling of every Christian to be of that spirit, not to compromise with this evil age. If you are godly, you will be persecuted, just as Herod would come after John. Blessed are they, Jesus said, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. See, if we're living an ordinary Christian life in this world, we will inevitably bump into people or situations where we need to speak up. Maybe it's some friends at work telling all kinds of risque jokes and you're tempted to just be silent or to walk away. But we need to speak up at times. We need to be direct and say, this, this is sinful. This is not pleasing to God. Because we fear God more than we fear men. John the Baptist shows us here the importance of being uncompromising with sin, although still being loving and patient, but nevertheless faithful and bold for for Christ's sake. What a lesson that is for us. Don't tolerate sin in your own life, but also don't give in to temptation when sin comes to you from outside of you. Call a spade a spade. Point to the sin and then point to Christ. For salvation. J.C. Ryle says of this passage, here is a pattern that all ministers ought to follow publicly and privately. They ought to rebuke open sin, deliver faithful warnings to all living in it. It may give offense. It may entail immense unpopularity. But with all this, they have nothing to do. Duties are theirs. Results are God's. Martin Lloyd-Jones says something very profound here. He says there's too much priestly preaching today that lacks prophetic preaching. Priestly preaching is good, of course, but without a prophetic note against sin. We may present many wonderful truths about the gospel, but if it lacks prophetic preaching, it tends to avoid going after the conscience of sinners. And so 
in preaching, but also in our daily lives. We're, we're called to be prophets, priests, and kings in this world, in all our relationships, whether it's parents with your children or grandchildren or wherever it is, whatever the situation arises, not in a rash way, but in a loving, firm way, like John the Baptist. We have to say, this is sin. This is wrong. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you do that, of course, you will be persecuted. And John the Baptist was. And that's our second thought, his persecution, despite Herod's awakened conscience. In verse 17, we read that Herod imprisoned John the Baptist. Herod himself sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake. Why? What was his underlying motive? Well, it's more complex than meets the eye. Herod was purposely both persecuting John and protecting him at the same time. Because he knew how much Herodias hated John. She wanted him dead. So he put him in prison to protect him. Now, why would Herod, such a sinful, lustful man, with John preaching against his sins, protect him? Well, the answer in the text is because John the Baptist's preaching awakened the conscience of Herod. Look at verse 20 with me. Herod feared John, knowing he was a just man and a holy man, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. What an amazing fruit of true preaching. Preaching that comes in the demonstration of the Spirit and in power. You see, when true, Spirit-filled, powerful preaching transpires, the Spirit often brings common convictions even into the lives of the unregenerate in their conscience. Even God-haters are awakened to God, to hell, to judgment, to sin. It's what we call the common convictions of the Spirit. When the Spirit accompanies the Word of God and works in a powerful way upon unbelievers without actually saving them. And that can go quite far sometimes. You, you read about that in Hebrews 6, 4 and 5, which speaks of unconverted people as those who could be enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, and yet be unsaved. Well, John, Herod is experiencing some of that under John's ministry. The reality of God, the reality of his own sin, is smiting him. So he doesn't dare kill John yet, which is what Herodias wants. But he puts him in prison, protecting him from the wrath of Herodias, while at the same time trying to please her, at least he's got, got him in prison. But the four details in this verse are very fascinating. Four details. Number one, Herod fears John. Isn't that interesting? He's the Tetrarch. John is just an itinerant preacher. He fears him. You see, Herod is made in the image of God. His conscience is still speaking. Romans 2.15 says our conscience will either excuse or accuse us. Well, Herod's conscience is accusing him. And the Spirit is using the Word to accuse him greatly. He's under profound conviction of sin. John is God's prophet, God's mouthpiece, and Herod knows it in his conscience. So he fears John. But then second, notice what the text says. He knows that John is just and holy. He knows that John has done nothing wrong. He knows that John doesn't deserve imprisonment. He's a righteous man. He's a holy man. He's a prophetical messenger of God. And yet he does it. It goes against his conscience. Then we read number three. That Herod heard him, not just once. Herod called for him different times, heard him. When John was in prison, Herod would sometimes take him out to hear him preach. He wanted to hear John's message. He wanted to hear about John's God and John's gospel. He was glad 
to hear John, the text says. Isn't that amazing? And yet he's unsaved. And then number four, the most surprising of all, he did many things because of John's preaching. He, he cleaned up his life on the outside in some ways. We don't, we're not told how. But there was some kind of reformation going on outwardly in the Tetrarch's life. He saw under John's preaching that various aspects of his life weren't right. And so he, he put them right. He was what you might call an unconverted, almost Christian. Someone who comes under the Word of God. And the Word of God comes with the Spirit and with power. And his life has changed. The Word wasn't going in one ear and out the other like it was with Herodias. John's life is, or rather Herod's life, is changing. And that still happens today. People can have outward changes under preaching. People can have consciences that speak. Maybe some of you are that way. Your consciences speak under the Word. But you go back on Monday, back into the world, and you shake it off. Or, or maybe you change some outward things. And your heart is tender. And yet you go on without fleeing to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Now oh, this wasn't the only person in the New Testament that responded this way. Now, Paul had it several times, didn't he? He had it with Felix. He had it with Herod Agrippa. He reasoned with Felix about righteousness, temperance, that's self-control, and judgment to come. And Felix trembled, yet pushed away the gospel. And Agrippa heard Paul preach, and he said, almost, as we, as we said already, thou hast persuaded me to be a Christian. But they remained unconverted, because their heart was not changed. They refused to give up their pride, the lusts of the flesh. They refused to surrender themselves totally to God. They refused to believe in Christ alone for salvation. They refused to move from being almost Christians to altogether Christians. They were lacking the saving change, the resurrection from the dead in their soul by the Holy Spirit. And yet the Word... The Word was piercing their heart. Their consciences were on fire, as it were. They, they would cry out, I'm a man of unclean lips. My righteousness is as filthy rags. I want to hear the Word of God. Herod could say all these things, but he won't convert to Jesus Christ. To convert to Jesus Christ means having to give up his idol, Herodias. It means he had to give up his pride, his ambition, his lust of the flesh. And he won't go that far. What about you tonight? Have you surrendered your life? Is there any part of your life that's not surrendered to Jesus Christ? Is your heart surrendered? The core of who you are. Do you wish that all sin were you, in you were dead? Do you strive by the grace of God to put a sword through it? Do you want to live wholly and solely for Christ? Have you believed in Christ alone for salvation? Repented of your sin? Plead for mercy? Trust in Him alone? Can you, I hope you can, say with sincerity, yes, by the grace of God, I no longer belong to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What a warning Herod is to us of how far things can go in our lives and not be saving. It's not enough to have conviction of sin. You need the Savior of sinners to be your Savior and your Lord and your King and your all and in all. But Herod won't yield to that. His sins are going to ensnare him now. And that brings me to point three, John's martyrdom at the hands of Herod. In comes Herodias. She wants John, you remember, dead. Verse 19 says, Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him. But she could not. She could not because of Herod. But the word quarrel here is a strong Greek word that means a deep-seated hatred, a grudge, a resentment. For opposing her lifestyle. She won't rest. She will not rest until she's killed. 
You see, the human heart has no fury like murderous designs frustrated. Even the sight, the thought of John arose bitter hatred in her heart. And so Herodias bides her time. She's the Jezebel of the New Testament. Remember Jezebel, how much she hated Elijah and was aiming to destroy him. She wants him dead. So Herodias is waiting for the opportune moment to ratch up the persecution of John the Baptist, to move him from imprisonment to martyrdom. And so verse 21 says, they're ominous words, when a convenient time was come. Right away, your, your ears prick up, don't they? Uh-oh, we're in, we're in trouble now. John's in trouble now. When a convenient time was come. Her hatred for John boiled and simmered inside of her. She schemes and plots in her mind, looking for the right day, the right opportunity, when she can arrange for him to be put to death. And the time was Herod's birthday. Well, you know what kings often do on their birthdays. They party. They celebrate. They have dancers. They, the alcohol flows freely. There's frivolity. What a perfect situation to take advantage of. Herod is there with all the prominent people of Galilee and Perea. When Herodias strikes, she sends her daughter into the center of the party. Josephus, the historian, informs us her name was Salome. She was in her early teens. She dances for Herod, no doubt with sexual connotations, to entice and allure him, to inflame his passions in the midst of his half-drunkenness. Well, why? Why would Herodias have her daughter do that? Well, she knows her husband is a man of lust. And she knows that he will be pleased. And she's entrapping him. And so verse 22 is hardly surprising. It pleased Herod and them that sat with him. And being a man of pride, trying to impress the men around him, as if he were a king when he wasn't a king, he says to the girl, ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. In fact, I'll swear with an oath, I'll I'll call on the name of God and promise you anything up to half of my kingdom. Well, that was a lot to promise. In fact, however, it's a a wicked, conscience-opposing, blustery promise that Herod can't even fulfill. First, he's no king. Second, he has no power to give any land up to Romans. And third... This is just simply a boasting statement, as if he had all power in his hands to do everything he wanted. But in his pride, you see, pride is such a destroyer of our lives. In his pride, he bombastically says, I'll give you anything you want. Well, the daughter goes to her mother, who's thinking now, I've got him. He he, he swore an oath. He fears John. He's starting to get involved in this religious nonsense. He can't go back on his oath. I want the head of John the Baptist. And so the daughter comes back, says what her mother wants. You can imagine the silence at that birthday party. And then the tragic text, verse 26. The king was exceeding sorry. You know that those words, exceeding sorry, are used only once, once more in the entire Gospel of Mark, and they're used of our Lord, who forgives the greatest of sins when He was crawling on the ground in the garden. My soul is exceeding sorrowful. That word is used here. His conscience is smiting so bad. He's exceeding sorry. The oath He made. He feels a grief down in the depths of His being. He groans within Himself, Why did I do it? But now the moment of truth comes. Just as the moment of truth came for Felix and for Herod Agrippa II. What would this Herod do? Will he humble himself now? Will he break his wicked oath? Does he break down in repentance? No. Will he say with Joseph, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? No. His lust, his pride, his ambition to impress the men around him has gotten him into trouble. He he has to save face. And so the text says these solemn words, yet for his oath's sake, not because of any commitment to God or those who sat at the feast, 
He would not reject. He would not deny her, is literally the Greek word. So Herod yields to man-pleasing once more. Man-fearing spirit. Verse 27, And immediately the king sent an executioner, commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded John in the prison. And the executioner puts the head on the charger. He comes into the midst of the large banqueting hall. There it is, the head of John the Baptist. Verse 28 says, He gave it to the damsel, and the damsel gave it to her mother. It was all over in a few minutes. How much damage we can do. What dreadful sin we can do in just a few minutes. When we go against our conscience. Herod seemed to have some promising things going to him. He was under conviction. He heard John gladly. He did many things. He was making changes in his life. But he refused to surrender his pride, his lust, his ambition. And he allows himself to fall into this just dreadful, dreadful sin. What a warning to us. What tragedy. What tragedy can transpire in our lives When sinners like you and me and Herod don't repent, don't come to Christ, don't come clean when we are under conviction. Here's the point. Not surrendering to Christ when under conviction of sin by the Spirit of Christ can lead us to grieve the Holy Spirit with the end result that we become harder and our consciences become even more seared shut after our conviction than before it. And so, dear friend, whether you're a boy or a girl, whether you're a teenager, a parent, grandparent, age is not the point, never step upon your convicted conscience. Don't harden your sensitized conscience. Improve, as the Puritans used to say, improve your convictions. And what does that mean? Well, by improving your convictions, they meant don't stifle them, but fall at the feet of Christ in repentance and surrender all your sin, all your need to Him. Entrust your soul, your eternity, your life into the hands of Jesus Christ. That's the great lesson behind this sordid, awful story. Don't stifle. Repent. And believe the gospel. Throughout this story, we need to remember that Mark is teaching us here about faithful Christianity. Even in persecution and martyrdom. But that may raise the question, is it worth it to be faithful Is it worth it not to compromise? Should John the Baptist have toned it down a bit? Should he have gone about things differently? Well, the answer of this passage is no. It is always worth it to be faithful, even though you may face persecution and ultimately even martyrdom. And we see this in what happens next. To both Herod and to John the Baptist. Let's look at them both a moment. What happens next to both Herod and John the Baptist? First of all, in Luke 9, when Herod heard all the stories about a mighty man doing miracles, which of course was Jesus now, he said out of fear and conviction, is this John the Baptist coming again to haunt me? Is he come again to do miracles? But it also says, when he finds out it was Jesus, listen to this, he desired to hear Jesus. He still had something in him that desired to hear good preaching. And he gets his opportunity. Herod Antipas does. In Luke 23, Pontius Pilate has Jesus on trial. You remember, he doesn't know what to do with Jesus. Then he finds out, ah, 
Jesus is from Galilee. I will send him to the Tetrarch of Galilee, Herod Antipas. And so Jesus comes before Herod. And Luke 23, verse 8 says, He was exceeding glad. He was excited to receive Jesus. He had questions. Questions to ask Jesus. He had been wanting to hear Jesus for many years. He has the opportunity. But what happens? Jesus refuses to say a single word to Herod. Why? Well, for one reason, of course, he was taking the place of you and me, dear believer, in the judgment courts. And he was the one who knew no sin, who became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, as we've been hearing for three weeks on justification by faith alone. So he was taking the place of the guilty like you and me. So he didn't defend himself at all. So there's a experiential salvific reason why Jesus was quiet for our sake. But there's another reason. There's another reason. You can find it in Luke 16, verse 31. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither, and John the Baptist was the best of all the prophets, Jesus said, neither will they be persuaded the one rose from the dead. You see, Herod had the opportunity to hear the greatest prophet whom Jesus called John the Baptist. And he beheaded him. And so Jesus Christ sovereignly offered him no more opportunities to hear the gospel and be saved. That's a solemn thought. Herod had closed the door on himself. And this is why Paul, in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, says to you and me today, today is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the time of salvation. You don't know if you'll have tomorrow. And you don't know if you'll just keep hardening yourself more and more. But don't go on unrepentant. That's the message from Herod's life. Tomorrow's faith is today's unbelief, and it will lead you to hell and to destruction. Repent now. Repent now. And then what happened? Well, because Jesus never spoke, Herod's true self comes out. He mocks Jesus then. He asks him to perform some miracles, which Jesus ignores. And then what happened? Well, Josephus tells us. He tells us that God's wrath came upon Herod after he martyred his beloved John. Just as Psalm 2 prophesied, kiss the son, lest his wrath come upon you. In A.D. 36, just shortly thereafter, Herod's sexual immorality caught up with him. You remember his former wife, the daughter of the king of Nabatea. Well, because of the offense of what Herod did in divorcing her and illegitimately taking another woman, the king of Nabatea brought troops and defeated Herod in battle. Herod was humiliated. And then three years later, Herod Antipas found out that a family member was actually going to be called king. And he was so jealous, he wanted to be a king, that Herodias convinced him to go to Rome and to plead, according to Josephus, to be made king. And he did that. He went all the way to Rome to ask the emperor, make me king. But what happened? The Roman emperor was so offended at his bald and bold ambition that he banished Herod and Herodias with him to Gaul. And he lost everything. Lost even being the Tetrarch. And there he soon died. As far as we know, he died outside of Christ. He who brought John the Baptist's head in on a charger is suffering in hell for all eternity. Sin destroys us forever. So sin was not worth it for Herod. It's not worth it for you either. Any kind of sin. But Jeremiah Burroughs said, we ought to prefer the greatest affliction to the least sin. Because sin is spiritual insanity. Sin is anti-God. Sin 
is heinous. Sin destroys. But come back to John now. Was it worth it for John to be faithful? Well, remember the text. He that endureth to the end shall be saved. And remember Psalms 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. So verse 29, the last verse of our text, is really, really beautiful. It's just a precious, precious text. When His disciples heard of it, they came and took up His corpse and laid it in a tomb. They buried Him in a tomb. That was God's providence. That doesn't happen to every martyr, by the way, but it happened to John. But what is God saying through this, God is saying to martyrs, if you suffer for Christ's sake, I'm with you. I will care for you. John's soul went immediately upon death to the Lord. And his body was cared for as well. And one, one, one day be reunited with his soul. And soul and body forever shall receive the crown of life, the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness. But even now in his soul, John the Baptist is ruling and reigning as king with Christ. Revelation 20 verse 4 puts it this way. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That's this time of millennium that we're in. The beheaded martyrs are reigning and living with Christ in their soul even now. They buried John in a tomb because they believed in the resurrection of the dead. John. Yes, it was worth it for John to do what he did. He's with Christ. And you can never wish him back when he's with Christ. 28 years ago, I was on this pulpit when a deacon brought a little note to me and placed it right here on this Bible. And it said, your father is seriously sick. And God took away my father on the pulpit in Kalamazoo from the pulpit to glory. And when I went to do his funeral a few days later, the last person to say anything to me before I went up on the pulpit, trembling, not knowing if I could make it through, was my mother. And she put her hand on my wrist and she said, Honey, remember, we can't wish him back. He's better off. That gave me the strength to go ahead. When your loved one or you are taken to glory, it's all worth it. Whatever sufferings you've done, gone through, for Christ's sake, it's all worth it. John the Baptist is rich beyond measure today. Herod is poor beyond measure today. Don't live according to your lusts of the flesh. Repent of your sin and flee to Christ. Well, I want to turn this back now to apply it to many of the situations going on today with three concluding questions at the end of this sermon. The first is this. Why does God allow His people to be persecuted? And there are lots of reasons, of course, but I'm just going to mention four of them quickly to you. Number one, persecution is one of God's most important methods of strengthening His children in maturing their faith. James puts it this way, Know this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that is, its mature work, that you may be mature and entire, lacking nothing. You see, God tests our faith to promote spiritual endurance in our walk with Him, and some of that testing comes through persecution so that we might be made stronger in that faith. Number two, persecution makes believers long more for the day when God will right all wrongs. He'll make them right. Like Stephen, the first post-Pentecost Christian martyr, died praying, Father, forgive them. They know not, they don't know what they're doing. Don't lay this sin to their charge. No personal vindictiveness on the part of Stephen. 
You see, when we get persecuted, we ought not get bitter against our persecutors, but we ought to just cry to God as, 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 the, as the saints do, as it were, under the throne when the fifth seal was opened in Revelation 6. Lord, how long, how long must we go on in this world? How long must we put up with the injustices of this world? How long will believers be persecuted, suffer, and die around the world at the hands of the ungodly? How long, O Lord, shall this world go on in its mad career of rebellion against Thy law? How long will baby-killing abortionists prosper? How long will those who indulge in all kinds of improper sexual sin prosper? How long before Thou wilt intervene? And we cry that for the glory of God. That's the purpose of persecution. Not so that we will get vindictive, but that we will get jealous for the glory of God. And then thirdly, persecution is God's pathway for His people to His gracious reward of the crown of righteousness. As as Paul said, I've kept the faith, I've finished my course. There's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all them who love His appearing. Think about that, dear believer. That means to you as well. There's a crown waiting for you. And you'll be a priest and a king unto God in that day. Persecution just ripens you for that day to receive your gracious reward. And then fourthly, above all, persecution paves the way to God's glory in His kingdom of glory. Because God will get the victory through every martyr, through every persecuted believer. Satan will fail for every single one. God will get all the glory throughout the heavy persecutions of His people. The militant church will become the triumphant church in Christ. So it's worth it to suffer. Secondly, What steps can we take then to support our modern martyrs who pay the ultimate price of persecution in this world? What should we do? Well, I've got five quick things here for you. Number one, be informed. Write to religious liberty advocacy groups requesting updated information. Be aware of what's going on in worldwide persecution. Number two, empathize with them. 1 Corinthians 12.26 says, Whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. And number three, pray for them. That's the most important thing you can do. Acts 12.5, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. You know, persecuted Christians... In these 66 different countries that are being persecuted right now, you, you read about this all the time. You hear about it all the time. They just ask, pray for them. Pray that they'll, they'll have courage to continue. Really, we should be praying for them every day. This is an atrocious outrage, what is going on in the world today. If you just take Afghanistan, which has been so much in the news uh, of late. Do you know that Afghanistan... Has 48,000 mosques and not one church building. They have, to, they have to worship underground. Did you know that they have 70 unreached people groups who have never heard the gospel? Did you know that there are 50 different languages spoken in Afghanistan? Only two of the 50 have a New Testament. And none of the 50 have a complete Bible. And yet, there's Christians suffering there. There's Christians that can't get out of the country there right now. Shouldn't we be praying every day for them? Then number four, speak of them and support them. Speak of their faithfulness to the church, like Paul did. He wrote to the Thessalonians, We ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions that you endure. Speak of this plight to your friend. Write on social media about their plight. Speak of their injustice to the government. Write your local congressman or senator to act on behalf of persecuted Christians around the world. The largest persecuted body of people in the entire planet Earth. 
And we ought to tell them in our letters that a double crime is being committed. The crime, number one, a persecution by some communist and Islamic governments and movements against Christians. But also, point two, the crime of free nations like ours that avoid the problem and are looking the other way out of greed for trade or out of political cowardice. We of all nations should be standing up for persecuted Christians around the world. And number five, we ought to go to them. Go to them in two ways. First, if we can't visit them, and we probably can't, we can find avenues to go to them perhaps by letter, like Peter did. Second, First Peter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered abroad throughout, and he lists all these countries. Somehow, we ought to be able to get communication to some of these persecuted Christians. And second, at the very least, we ought to go to them by contributing to mission groups who are working for their release among the persecuted peoples. So what will we do? Will we do any of these five? Or will we just continue in our content Western ways, acting as if the world is just America, shirking our duty? Will you be an Esther who's come for such a time as this? A time to intercede for persecuted Christians? A time to shatter the silence about this gross persecution? A time to refuse to allow your senator, your congressman, not to hear about it from you, a time that you will not allow yourself to go on with unconscionable apathy? Or will you be an Esther? Will you hear the word of God? Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. And then the last question, number three. What are some major practical takeaways from this sordid history of Mark 6 that we can glean for ourselves, the church, our nation, the world today? I just close with, with three of them. Number one, let us remember that there's no torture like that of an awakened conscience willfully rejecting light and refusing to submit what it knows to be true. Let me repeat that. There's no torture like that of an awakened conscience, willfully rejecting light, and refusing to submit to what it knows to be true. That's Herod. From the first whisperings of his conscience, to the the later thunderclaps in his conscience, he refused to submit to what he knows to be true. If that's you tonight and you're refusing to bend the knee before King Jesus, I plead with you one more time, do not be like Herod. Do not be like Herod. Don't refuse to embrace God, the God of light, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Don't press forward with your tortured conscience. Don't say, well, I come to church and I'm outwardly pretty decent and I'm just hoping for the best in the end. You need to be in Jesus Christ or you will be lost forever. You understand? Don't be a Herod. Don't be a Herod. And you, child of God, don't go against your conscience. Don't take on the miseries of David that he regretted so much when he fell into sin more than once. Don't play with your conscience. There's no torture like the tortures, tortures of conscience. That's what hell is about. The, the conscience is a never-dying worm eating away inside. Oh, go back to Christ once more. Remember Psalm 1 verse 6. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Shall perish. No doubt about it. And number two, let us evangelize our neighbors and co-workers and pray earnestly for new converts by the Spirit's gracious blessing. Every unconverted person is a mission field. Sunday school starting up in a few weeks. What an opportunity 
What an opportunity to be a helper and to impact the souls of children. Who can tell? Remember, remember elders and deacons? Some of you were there when a young man came into our consistory room some years ago and said, I've come back. I was in your Sunday school years ago. And God used that Sunday school for my conversion. I've come back to tell you, to thank you for doing that work in Sunday school and reaching my never-dying soul. What a blessing. But not just Sunday school. A thousand ways. Wherever you see opportunities, speak to people. Evangelize people. Our churches, nation, and world will best be built back up through the conversion and discipleship of numerous Christians, from young children to seniors, not from the top down, not from the political powers that be, and they are important. We've seen that certainly in the last year, what damage government can do. But at the same time, real reformation, real real revival must go from the bottom up in America and all around the world. And so, in dependency on the Spirit... Let's return to the Scriptures. Let's return to prayer and to prayer meetings, beseeching God for reformation and revival. May God help us to put a, put a sword through our apathy and to strive prayerfully to be salt in the earth and lights on the hill, to speak clearly, compassionately, boldly about the true moral and spiritual issues at work that are destroying America today and the world. And finally, let us refuse to compromise with God's core truths, but be faithful if and when we are persecuted. It is all worth the price. I close this sermon with a story of James Renwick. James Renwick, who died as a martyr in Scotland at age 26. He believed that Jesus Christ alone was head of the church. King James II of England, also King James VII of Scotland, had many troops looking for him to arrest him. One day they caught him. This young man was put on trial, found guilty as charged, sentenced to death on the gallows. But they said, if you confess that King James is the head of the church, we'll let you go immediately. What would you do in that situation? What would I do? What a temptation to compromise. James Raymond could have said, well, I could just have confessed it for a moment. And in my heart of hearts, not believed it, but, well, God would forgive that sin. And think about how many more people I could preach the gospel to for the rest of my life. I'm only 26 years old. James Raymond looked back at his accuser and said, King James is not the head of the church. King Jesus is. Well, on the day of his execution, the drum started to pound. And that was a signal that he was being taken out of prison to be put on the scaffold to be hung. And when Renwick saw the scaffolding, scholars say from about 800 feet away, he said, yonder, yonder is a welcome invitation to my eternal marriage. The bridegroom is coming. I am ready. I am ready. Let us be glad and rejoice for the Lamb is come. He then walked through the crowd to the scaffolding. And when he arrived, he turned around and he looked at the crowd. And he said, you spectators, I must tell you that I come here this day to lay down my life for the adhering to the truth of Christ for which I am neither afraid nor ashamed to suffer. May I bless the Lord that He ever counted me worthy or enabled me to suffer anything for Him. Counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. No wonder the martyrs shall be like stars in heaven one day, outshining others in glory for Jesus Christ. Be faithful unto death, and He will give you a crown of life. Amen. Gracious God, we're humbled by John the Baptist. We're humbled by James Renwick, but we're 
even more humbled by Jesus Christ, who gave the supreme price that we might be set free and gives us the grace we need to be faithful in the hour of need. And we pray for that now. We pray that whatever's coming in our lives, we would say no to sin and yes to Jesus, that we'd persevere to the end. Help us to lay down our entire lives for the cause and kingdom of this glorious and beautiful Savior. O Lord God, be with those in our midst who are still resisting the overtures of this welcoming and willing King of Kings. Lord, please, please use this sermon tonight to gather them in. Help them to stop going on rejecting the overtures of the King of the universe. Help them to bow the knee, for behold, now, now, today is the day of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.